0: We're working through chapter 8 of John. Now, chapter 8, the last half of chapter 8 of John, we've covered a lot of the things that are in there already. Jesus telling them who he is. He's talking about um, that he sets people free. All these things went on. So, so I don't want to try to squeeze juice out of a raisin. And so we're just gonna, I'm going to encourage you to read over the last half of chapter 8. And we're just going to jump right into chapter 9 uh, this week. And, and we're going to continue on chapter 9 is a great story of Jesus healing the blind man. And what I really like about this guy um, th- this this blind person is he has chutzpah towards the end of the story man. He just like he just doesn't care. He's just laying it out there in front of the Pharisees and and, and I kind of enjoy that, but we're not even going to get there until like probably July anyway. So so we're just going to we're going to look at John chapter 5 uh, chapter 9 verse verses 1 through 5. I'm going to pray and we're going we're going to get into it. God, we want to thank you for the work that you're doing. We want to thank you for people who, who are um, moving in your rhythm, seeing where you're working, and joining you in that work. And God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and a heart that just that breaks for your kingdom and for the people that, that you love so much that you want to reconcile back to you. And so, God, continue your work through and with us, your church. God, this morning I pray that the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. John, chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, in the Old Testament, the, the process of bringing somebody sight was always God's deal. It, it was God's thing to bring sight. And in, also in the Old Testament, we'll find that the Messiah, it was his job to give sight to the blind, to illuminate. But there is no a miracle of somebody's physical sight being restored in the Old Testament. Now, by the time we get to the New Testament, we find that out of all the recorded miracles of Jesus, giving sight to the blind is the one that is recorded the most. And what John is trying to do for us here, he's trying to focus and hone in. This is who Jesus is. This is who, um, this is what the Old Testament prophets, who they talked about, is, is come manifest in who Jesus is. He wants to make sure we get it and we understand. Not only is Jesus just the symbolic representation of the light that was celebrated in the festival of, of tabernacles and, and all through Isaiah, but now Jesus is the one who will physically bring sight to the blind. He will bring this man from darkness into light. We find Jesus. He's on the move with the boys and he sees a blind man and he's blind from birth. And that little detail, blind from birth, is very important because if this man wasn't born blind from birth and he caught some disease, it may be very curable with with their modern-day medicine. There has been um, recorded documentation of people going blind back in those days and having some, whatever they used for, uh, medic- for medicines and restoring their sight. But it says that this man, this man was born blind from birth. And this means it's a very, very serious ailment that he has. This isn't something that he caught. This was something that he was born with. And he is an adult. And so he has been this way all his life life he from the moment he was born till whenever jesus sees him now we don't know his age but we know he's a man he has been blind so he would be considered part of the poor this man would have to to beg for money so he can buy food he would have to rely on the generosity of other people it would be a very very difficult life for the physically disabled in the first century to to live. They probably had little to no friends. Their family usually did not have anything to do with them. Later on in the story, we see this man. We we were introduced to his parents, but they just kind of throw him under the bus when the Pharisees question them. And so it's a very, very difficult life. It's hard to be disabled in the first century. He's probably homeless. He lives in the street. We don't usually see that type of thing in our culture. We don't see people with a a physical disability or a mental disability having to beg just to survive. In the first century, they begged because they were considered outcasts. They They were pushed to the edge of society. It's uncommon to see that in our culture. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe that we, as a culture, as a society, could do much more to come alongside those with physical handicaps or physical disabilities and mental disabilities and help them live a better life. But we don't intentionally move people, make them, make them feel like or push them to the outskirts of our society. But around the world, it happens all the time. There are other places, other countries where people with any type of disability, they are still begging for their food. They are still begging for money. Millions of people suffer still because of injustice. And so for this man, his suffering goes way beyond his blindness, goes way beyond what he's experienced physically. It goes socially and financially and emotionally and even even spiritually. Look at what the question um, that Jesus' disciples asked. Next slide, Wes. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's a very common belief in, in the ancient world that sin caused suffering, especially blindness. If you were blind, then obviously God was punishing you for something that you must have done. One of the ancient rabbis would write this there is no death without sin no suffering without iniquity and then in Psalm in Psalm 89 it says God will punish sin with a rod and iniquity with flogging so there is some some foundational mindset that that says okay maybe suffering does come from sin there is some credence for this idea and this man this man has been been blind from birth and the apostles, uh, the disciples, they 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 buy into this idea that obviously suffering comes from sin, but they're a little perpe- perplexed by this dogma. As they ask Jesus, you know, who who messed up? Who sinned? Was it his parents or or was it him? Now, again, in Jewish tradition, first century, if your parents were really bad, that sin would be visited on. The children for generation to generation to generation. Very common idea. And also they believe, some rabbis would teach, that you can sin before you were born. They base it out of Genesis, Esau and Jacob. They are fighting in the womb. They're being fresh. They're obviously sinning. There's arrogance going on. One wants to get out before the other one. And so in their mindset, yes, you can actually sin before you're born. But Jesus is going to answer their question differently. Next slide. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. All right. I think that we have to look briefly... And talk about the other side of the coin. The consequence of sin in our lives can and will cause emotional, physical, relational, even spiritual suffering. But but for many Christians, we look at it as God is punishing us. I have messed up and God, God is punishing me. Well, let me challenge that with this idea, with this thought. If you are forgiven in Christ, why would God punish you for something he's already forgiven you for? So maybe there's a little something else going on. Yes, we could talk about God's discipline. God disciplines those that he loves. I understand that, but but, but punishment. Or maybe could it be that we are just suffering the consequences of our actions? Okay, if you rob a car, if you break into a store and steal and you go to jail, is that God punishing you, or is that you just suffering the consequence of your action? If you are driving 50 miles an hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone, and I know some of you do, (laughs) (laughs) and you get a ticket, is that God punishing you, or is that just the consequence of your action? Too often we we over-spiritualize these things, and it's just pretty much cause and effect, consequence to action. But understand, living outside of God's harmony, there are going to be those things called consequences. But God is not sitting in heaven waiting for you to mess up, to throw on you some divine spanking. That's not the way this works. We make decisions, and then we either enjoy the consequence of those decisions or we suffer the consequence of those decisions. And too often it's, oh, you know, the devil's attacking me or, you know, the devil made me do it, which is probably true. Paul talks about sin and how it's just in us and it's this thing that, that boils up. But, but it's not always this, this God thumping on you, but there is consequence. Here's a very simple truth. If you build your house on the mouth of a volcano, on, on the mouth of a vo- volcano, don't be angry with God when it erupts. Sometimes the consequence or what we call punishment is just us being stupid in our decisions. But Jesus will tell his disciples this: it's, it's, it's not sin that has caused this man's blindness. don't Mistake that for, for thinking that this man is without sin. Nobody is without sin, but, it, but it's not the sin of his parents that caused it. It's not his sin that caused it. And it doesn't say anything about this guy being a bad guy or an evil person. He is just an average guy trying to live his life who got dealt a poor hand. And in our humanist, we can kind of take this to say that something bad has happened to a good person. Now, have you ever asked that question. Why do bad things? Why do things that just seem unfair happen to seemingly good people? Now, I know nobody's good. We're all, so, I, I get that. But, 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 you know, I would say we're all kind of good people here. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world? Why are there still eight people buried in the rubble of that home that Mike saw in Haiti? How can those things happen? What, what is going on there? You, you know what I wrestle with the most? And one of the things I wrestle with is, is, is Owen, Owen Dennis. God allowed him to be born premature. Okay, God, what's up with that? Who, by the way, Owen is over four pounds now. And, and, um, yep. and another couple weeks, they'll try to excavate him again. So it looks like we're holding off on the trach, so keep praying. Um, but, but, you know, God has allowed these ups and downs to happen. What is going on? And that question of why bad things happen, why is there unjust suffering, has plagued humanity ever since that we can, ever since we can formulate questions philosophers, theologians, scientists, just common folks like us wrestle with that question. There's this whole book in the Bible called Job, and and it tackles this idea of of why people, why is there suffering? Why does it seem unfair? And it it offers some really interesting ideas and possible answers, all to get to the very end of the book, and it just all explodes, and it comes down to man cannot fathom the ways of God. (sighs) Yeah. You know, sometimes that's just not good enough for me. There's a story in, in the Old Testament. And God, God wants Moses to go to Pharaoh, right? And God says, you know, Moses, just just go and tell him, let my people go. And he comes up with all these lame excuses. I can't talk. Wah, 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 I don't want to. And, 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 but finally, he goes. And he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. This is what God says. You got to do it. And, you know, Pharaoh was like, oh, sure. No, he wasn't. In fact... Things get really bad for the people. Pharaoh ends up just just putting uh, unbelievable weight in their work and just makes things so, so difficult for them. And then Moses goes back to God, and this is what he asks. Moses returned to the Lord and said, "'Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? "'Is this why you sent me? "'Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, "'he has brought trouble on on this people.'" And you have not rescued your people at all. Do you ever feel that way? Why, God? I've done what you've asked me to do. I've obeyed you. And this is not working out like I thought it would. This is exactly what Moses is saying. This is a hard, open, honest question to God. He was obedient, though maybe in the beginning he didn't want to. But he went anyway. And things have gotten worse. And in the end, God will finally say to him, "Don't worry about it, I got you." you know it, It'll work out." And you know, if, if I'm really honest, I don't like that answer. I, don't, I, I know the end of the story, but if you just sometimes you have to read the Bible like you don't know the beginning or the end. you just put yourself right there. That's a really hard answer to take. Things are going really bad. And I don't like that answer in the story, and to be honest, I don't like that answer when I get it in my life it's going to work out. No, I want it to work out today. And, and if God would just get that, my life would be so much better. <laughs> but, and so Moses asks a really difficult question. And now many will teach that this question from Moses, it shows his human frailty. It shows, it shows human failure. He is not measuring up to the unquestionable faith that God has called him to. And I could not disagree more. You see, I take great comfort in looking at this verse, this great man of God who who met God, God spoke to like from a bush that was burning that didn't consume. I mean, we're talking cool stuff. This man of God suffered doubt. This man of God suffered despair. He asked the question, and for me, that puts me in really good company. And I, I find solace in that. I find a peace in that. You know, as far as that question goes, I would say that it doesn't, doesn't not show faith. It doesn't show broken faith. It doesn't show little faith. I would say this question is faith in action. Let me, let me explain. To question God... To wrestle with God can only come from somebody who believes in God. If I question God, that means there has to be some sort of belief that I hold in God. I don't question fairies. I don't believe in fairies. I'm not going to ask them a question as to why. I don't question unicorns because unicorns (laughs) I don't believe unicorns exist. I love the, the the premise of of atheism. It says there is no God, and I hate him. How could you hate something that you don't believe in? A sermon for another day. Anyway, so so I so in order to question. God, there has to be some belief. Now, I know that people who don't believe in God, they can really ask those hard questions as to why. Why the brokenness in the world? Why are all these things happening? We have had earthquake after earthquake after earthquake over the last months, and and, and untold countless numbers of people have died, and and, and houses and and families ruined. People that don't believe in God can ask those questions, but who do they ask? Do 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 they ask fate? Do they ask physical science or, or law, I guess, maybe? Do they ask the evolutionary process? Who can, they, who can they get angry at? Who can they shake their fist at? Ultimately, you can't blame something on someone that you don't believe in. Now, we got to take this to the next step. Even some people who believe in God would never question God, not like Moses did. There are many people who believe in God, but, but don't believe that he's really in control of what's going on. They, they, they fail to see or understand the ultimate goodness of who he is. And so they don't believe that everything that happens has either been allowed or ordained or however you want to put it by God. And so they don't ask. I mean, why protest? He doesn't, he's not going to listen or worse yet, they believe he just doesn't care. But But the person with faith, who believes that everything has happened because God has allowed it to happen, who believes everything has happened because God has ordained it to happen, ultimately believe that God has His hand in everything, whether it be good or bad. And now we can talk and confront and ask the questions. Even Jesus on the cross yells out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a cry of hopelessness and despair by the son of God. Even he doubted in that moment. We have good company. Our confronting God, asking questions of God is an act of faith and not an act of faithlessness. And so we ask, God, why do you allow suffering in the world? Why was this man born blind and had to suffer all of this time? Why do innocent people die from injustice? What is going on? And you know, it frustrates me sometimes to hear a very pat answer given by many, many in the Christian world that says, well, you can't fathom the ways of God. Shut up. Because I'm tired of hearing that sometimes. And I'm just being honest. And if you're not tired of hearing those things, well, shame on you. Because that question still burns inside me. I want an answer to it. Here. Okay. But then I'm thinking about, do I really want the answer to that question? I mean, do I really? I, I'm beginning to believe that, that we fare far better holding on to that question than really knowing the answer? I mean, are you bothered by the fact that innocent people die and suffer, that thousands will die in the next 24 hours from diseases and sicknesses that we can go to CVS and Rite Aid and buy medicines for? Well, you should be bothered by that. Are you bothered by sex slavery and modern-day slavery? Well, you should be bothered by that. I mean, can you walk through a children's ward of a hospital and look at all of the kids who are sick? And and, and you should ask why, and your heart should break. Anybody with any type of of, um, moral sensitivity, they would say, why? What's, What's going on? And you would be moved. But what if? What if we asked that question, and God gave us the answer? And it was a really good answer. And not only did he give us an answer, but what if we asked the question and God gave us an answer and he explained it to us and he explained it so we could really understand it. What what would happen? Mystery solved. Answer given. Explanation received. And you can't really argue with God over the explanation, right? So so you have to kind of accept it. I wonder... If the question was answered, could we possibly begin to make peace with suffering and injustice? Imagine nine, ten-year-old little girls sold to men in their 30s and 40s to be sex slaves. If we knew the reason why, if we had God's answer as to why and his explanation, would we continue to be bothered by their cry? Would we continue to be bothered by that image? Would you hurt for them? When we have the explanation for brokenness and injustice and pain, it doesn't seem that bad anymore. We can begin to tolerate it. I'm not saying we think it's right. We know that the brokenness of the world is caused by the world is broken. We get that, but we can begin to tolerate it. Let me give you an example. It's a beautiful sunny day. It's summertime. You're walking down the street in your neighborhood and you hear blood curdling, screaming, from a woman in some house and you're racing around to figure out what house this is coming to. This is, this is like no joke screaming. Something is going wrong. And finally you find the house and you run up to the, you run up to the porch and you pound on the door and you're screaming, hello, hello. And some guy opens the door. He's very calm and cool. And you can hear the screaming coming from in this house. This woman is in pain. And you ask, I was walking down the street and I heard this this screaming, is everything okay in this house? And you see and you look in and there's there's a few people they are just still standing around and, and nobody seems to think this is an emergency. But there's something obviously going on in this house where this woman is hurting and she's screaming. And the man at the door says, oh no. Now this is their first child and she's chosen to give birth at home with the midwife. And so what happens to you? You have the explanation of this woman's pain, and things change for you. And you begin to be able to maybe accept the fact that that she's going through this. And it's not such an emergency anymore. When we have the explanation for pain, not that it makes it right, but we can begin to tolerate it just a little bit more. If we had the answer to that age old question, would we start to rationalize tragedy and then be able to live with it? Again, I'm not saying we would think it's right. I'm not saying your heart becomes callous. I'm just saying it becomes livable. We would see the pain and injustice in the world, and instead of being horrified by it, we can just explain it away God's explanation. He gave me the answer. And then we can just move on. But as long as we have the question, we will be continued. We will continue to be bothered by it. As long as we cannot explain it away, there's always the pull and the draw to make it better, to fix it, to alleviate it. Rather than justifying it, we have a desire to get rid of it. Jesus will tell his disciples, listen, man, this is not about you. It's not about this guy. It's not about his parents. It's not about sin. It's about God. This is, this is about the works of God being displayed. And and, and for me, I wrestle with that. God is God. He could find a better way to display his work. That's what I'm thinking. But how does the works of God be displayed in brokenness and suffering and injustice? How How can God's glory be revealed in those things? Well, in my humble, simple opinion, it's when the people of God get off their butts and do something about it. But I'm too busy. But, but I'm too lazy. But I don't know what to do. But, but it's too hard. But I don't want to. But can't you do it instead? You thought I was talking about the other butts too, huh? I was. One T or two. Look what Jesus says. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is going to do something about it. He takes the first steps. And in the, in the rest of the story, we will see that he takes charge. He takes action. The question pulls him into doing something. As long as it's still day, as long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as you can get out of bed, you are called to do the work that God has sent us to do. Joining him in making everything new, reconciling all creation back to him, healing brokenness, bringing justice to where injustice is. This is the work of God. Sharing the good news, and the gospel in ways that changes people's life. Jesus is on mission, and he is calling us to do the same, to be on mission. As long as it's still day, we, not I, we, we must do the works of him who sent Jesus. We are called to do the works of God. Jesus knows the answer to our question: Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow suffering in the world? Why does why does this, this all just seem like ugh? And he and he decides that it's not about the question. Almost like stop asking the question and instead start formulating your response. Do something. You know I've been um. I've been really wrestling with this idea of being missional as a church, especially over the last few months, probably since the beginning of the year. You know, what does it look like for us to be on mission, to be on the Jesus mission? And, 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 and it, I keep getting drawn back to even our outside the wall event. Because, you know, on, on some levels, that, that, that thing that we do outside the walls and it turned into a weekend, it, it does, it's really good. But other ways, it has failed us. And I take full responsibility for it. My, my hope, my belief was, if we continue to talk about being missional, if we continue to talk about this type of stuff, if we continue to just lay it out there and say, we need to be the church, we need to get outside of this building and live the Jesus life. And then we offered opportunities to people to actually do that, to get a taste of what it's like. Then everybody everybody would just catch fire and just go out and live that way that hasn't been the case and what we've what we've accomplished is a very well organized church program and i don't want to be a church full of programs i want to be a church full of people who live on mission who live on this mission and here's how i know it became a church program Church programs have very distinct characteristics. First, you have one or two people that do all the organizing and all the work. In our case, it's one. It's Amy. She handles all of the organization, and she does an amazing job. You have no idea the amount of work that goes into pulling off an outside-the-walls event. Everything that I have ever asked her to do, she's done, and more to make it happen. It goes seamless and flawless but it falls on the shoulders of usually one person. And then for us, we get like, uh, you know, 25, 30 people who come, and it's usually the same 25 and 30 people that come, and the rest of the 60 or 70 people that attend our church, nothing. Nothing happens. And so these 25 or 30 people that usually come, they, they are embracing this idea of living missional. They're getting outside the walls, not just in our church event, but, but they're, they're living that way. And most of the rest of the people, nothing. And so what we have is a really nice church program. And I don't want to be a church uh, with With just a bunch of programs, and see here here's here's where I, here's where I know it it's difficult. Nobody can argue with the fact that being outside of the walls and and living the Jesus life is a good thing. You can't argue that if if you do, then you should go join a different religion. I don't know. I mean, because, because everybody gets it. Nobody's going to argue with that. And, and then, you know, you, you have all good intentions, but then, but then life sneaks up on you, and you just get so busy. And, and it just kind of, it, it kind of just sucks the life out of the kingdom stuff because you have all of this stuff to do, and you're so busy. But here's what I'm learning about being busy. That we are busy with exactly what we choose to busy ourselves with. Nobody forces you to be busy. Nobody's forcing you to do anything that you're doing. You are choosing to do what you're doing. And I know some of you say, but, you, man, you don't know my job. Man, my job takes up a lot of time. Listen, and, and, I, and I mean this with all love. Everybody has a job. You have to stop using that as an excuse. I know that we're busy, but you choose to be busy. And, in fact, not only do you, do you choose it, you, you map it out and you plan it. And then, and then you execute your busyness. And many, many times, what we're busy with, me included, I am in this with you, me included, those things matter very little in the scope of God's kingdom. If you ever got to the end of your week and you plop down on a couch on a Friday night and you're just like, where did the week go? I, I have no idea what I did. You know what? You are surviving. You're not living. You need to look at where you're spending your time. Life has to mean something. Not just going through the motions. Life has to mean something. Don't allow your days and nights to be filled with with things that don't matter, or even selfish pursuits. What does it look like to live on mission? Uh, What would it look like in the family I'm not talking about church. I'm talking about on Jesus' mission. What would it look like in your family? What would it look like in your neighborhood, in your community? What would it look like in the world if individuals decided, you know what, enough of the dumb stuff, I'm going to live the way Jesus calls me to live. And that has very, very, very little to do with church. I've been... um. We have to ask better questions as a church, and I've been wrestling with these questions and these ideas in my head, and I, and I'm just, you know, I'm 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 frustrated by them. And I can I, I and again, hear me. I take full responsibility for for this 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 oops in the road that we've taken with just being another program with our outside the walls, and I have an idea how to fix that, and some of you might not like it, but that's okay. Times we don't like what the pastor has to say. Call me. Don't email me because I won't respond. And, and so, <laughs> so that's just me. But I have some ideas. And, and I've been reading um, a, a couple books. Uh, we just got finished reading Missional Renaissance, what it looks like to regain the focus of mission in the church. And there's another book I've begun to read called uh, Present Future. And they're both written by Reggie McNeil. And um, in there, he poses six questions that every church has to answer. Every church should answer that wants to be on mission for Christ. And the thing that frustrates me, and it also I love, he gives no easy answer. There is no pat little response on, um, on how to answer those questions. Let me read them to you. His first question is, how do we move from churchianity to Christianity? How do we transform our communities, the places that we live, our jobs, our neighborhoods? How do we transform them? How do we turn church attendees into missionaries? How do we develop Jesus followers? McNeil makes this statement that you can't plan for the future. Because you don't know what the future holds. Instead, how do we stop planning for the future and we begin to prepare for the future? And, in, and instead of developing church leaders, how do we develop Christian movement leaders? These are just some of the questions that I have been wrestling with. And we are going to wrestle with as a church. This is the beginning of really taking a hard look. We're almost two years into this experiment. And personally, I want more. And I'm going to be asking of you more. Not more church, not more not more showing up for social events, but more in the context of your everyday life. I want to equip you with, with the thought process you need to be able to pray for somebody. You know, I missed, and I, and I kicked myself um, for doing this. I was in the, um, uh, the, the elevator when I was visiting um, Kevin and Amanda and, and Owen, and there was this little boy, and they have, and, and he's with his mom, and they have two, um, I guess, people that work at the hospital, and this little boy was going in, obviously, for some surgery, and... Um, and they were explaining, you know, I guess it's kind of to initiate him, to show him around, to see what's going to happen. And, and I was in the elevator, and I looked at him, and he was kind of pasty, and I didn't know what was wrong with him. But he looked, he looked sick, and he looked terrified. And I stood there, and I looked at him, and my door opened. And I looked, and I walked out, and the door closed. And I was like, God, why didn't I pray for him? Why didn't I just say, hey, man, it's going to be all right? Why didn't I just just offer Offer a word of encouragement. See, that's mission. It has nothing to do with this. That's what's being on mission. And we miss those opportunities over and over and over again. I don't want to miss another opportunity like that. And so we're going to put some things. I'm going to to hopefully give you some, some ideas, some challenges to take. Jesus said, as long as it is day, we have to do the work. the one who sent him. Church, we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. And I'm excited that we are going to do it together. Listen, I love you all. I love this church, but I want more for us. I want more for the kingdom of God. I don't want to get stuck going through the motions. God, um, I want to repent of my my indifference at times to your kingdom. I want to repent, God, that I've allowed myself to get busy and miss what's important many times. God, I repent for us as a community for our shortcomings. But God... I know that this is your heart to do the will of the one who sent Jesus to do your will. So, God, I'm asking you to strengthen us for it. Give us vision. Break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Let us come alongside you in your work. Give us eyes to see it and strength to partake in it. Ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.